Welcome to season four, episode six of Psycho Hashtag Psychotherapy Unfolds. As you know, I'm Mark Fielding, psychotherapist and relationship counsellor and your host. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Michael Darby, clinical lead for children and young people and family, the family team in it- Melbourne, Australia. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, yes, I'm the um, clinical lead for um, in the sexual abuse um, sector for children, young people and families. Fabulous. So thanks for that, Michael. I mean, I, I looked before the show, you know, as I always do, I guess I look through your LinkedIn profile. Goodness me, you have so much experience in so many different areas that we'll try and touch on a little bit. We, we, we're going to talk about shame as well. Um, but I just wanted to kick off, Michael, and just ask you a little bit around family therapy if that's okay we've never had a family therapist on the show and maybe you could just say a little bit for our listeners about what it is what you do just anything you think would be helpful for our listeners to know yeah yeah so um kind of in my career I've worked with children and young people for the majority of it so for about 15 years and what I've noticed is is that to create change you have to work with the family and the family system um so that's where I um studied and got my master's in family therapy um, to really create a long-lasting change. We talk about first-order change, which is, you know, just the initial, often behavioural change. And then what you want is the second-order change, more of a long-lasting. So family therapists work, not only do they work with the individual, they work with the family as well, as the title would say. But you don't have to work with the family. If the family's not in the room, you can use your questioning to bring in the family in and start to think about well, how that might impact um, on someone. Um so yeah, so it's a lot more, it's about relational connections, thinking relationally, what what how the problem's getting relationally, mm. and then how can we overcome the problem? And often just viewing the problem as the problem, or sometimes the solution has become the problem. Um, so trying to think kind of around that, the systems around the person. Yeah, so it's often view it, yeah. So go ahead. I was gonna say I often view it as a bit like um when we can't when we are gardening or we have a plant and we can't get it to grow, we don't work just with the plant. We work with the soil and the lighting and everything like that. So similar in family therapy. Yeah. So kind of really working from, I don't know, from, I mean, you, you probably bring lots and lots of different kind of modalities into it, but working from a systemic lens, looking at the family yeah. within the wider, or looking at the family system, I guess, predominantly, and then looking at the wider systems around the family. I mean, Michael, when you, when you say sometimes the, the solution can be the problem. Say a bit more about that. Well, what do you mean by that? Can you think of an um, example, maybe? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So it might be, for example, um, let's think about a family where um, parents might be overridden and just really stressed, and so they might be using, I don't know, harsh um, abuse, abusive means. For example, physical, physical discipline to kind of bring the children more into line and so the solution is is you know the children are um needing boundaries um but they're using too far boundaries or too much um in the physical discipline so that the solution of trying to control the situation has become the problem um so then it's working on well what other solutions can can we look at for this for this situation um and that everyone comes from a a well-intended or meaningful place as in um you know part of them might be doing something that's really harmful um and then another part of them might be actually hating that they're doing that so really looking at you know the behavior is just the behavior and that there's people have different parts of them that um when they're working through situations and i, I think about the kind of level of complexity of I mean, family therapy i mean i use 
kind of systemic well partly a systemic approach with couples and he, and do you know what even with a couple my god i mean goodness me it's so complex having two people in the room compared to one-to-one therapy but i mean when you've got a whole family in the room goodness me the level of complexity must be vast i mean there must be so much going on yeah yeah there's so much going on there's so <laughs> much to draw from and um, my favorite probably approach in family therapy is the milan family therapy they introduce circular questions so instead of asking someone a direct question maybe asking someone else so it might be mm. um hey mark what do you think might be going on for for michael as we're talking through this podcast today for example that's a circular question yeah. what it does is it creates actually a reframe in the family because you would guess what might be going on for me and often I find the teenagers who don't want to talk they will talk if it's absolutely wrong we'll say absolutely not that's not what's going on um mm. so it's a really great tool to use to get um, especially teenagers to talk but also releasing new information into the system yeah and bringing other people into room yeah I mean the, the Milan approach I mean we, are, we we probably won't go into this today but I mean, the Milan approach is, I mean, I think it's amazing, really. I mean, I really love that approach, you know. And, and and I guess, as you say, you know, I mean, you don't even have to have the whole family in the room. You can bring family members in, even if they're not actually physically present, you know, which, you know, which, again, is just I mean, such, such an interesting ap- approach. But we maybe won't go into that kind of too, too much. I just maybe we want to bring us to kind of shame, if that's okay, um, and just tell us around, tell us a bit around shame and I don't know, just what, what it is, you know, and just, you know, well, let's just kick off with what it is, maybe, Michael. I mean, what is shame? So shame is that um, internal feeling that we are not good enough or we're bad in some way. And shame evolved through when we were, were living as a tribe. So um, we lived in a tribal sense to keep ourselves safe, um, and it was to stop us from doing behaviours that weren't agreed. So um, shame will work if we've agreed on values and rules, and if we step outside those values and rules, then we'll feel shame, and often shame will stop us in our tracks and then bring us back to the tribe to bring us back to connect. So um, a really great example of that is where it has been COVID. So here in Australia, we had to wear masks and lockdowns, um, and so if we, for example, if we're sitting outside a shopping centre and we needed to put our mask on and maybe we'd forgotten one, we might not have gone into that shopping centre because we might feel like we'd be shamed if we were to walk through the shopping centre without a mask. Um, or sometimes people who had exemptions and medical exemptions felt shame for not wearing a mask. Um, so shame can be really helpful emotion because it can help us in behaviours, but it can also be quite toxic when it's uh, what we talk about mistaken shame. So mistaken shame is when we actually haven't done anything wrong yeah. um, and we feel shame and that's kind of mistaken and can get toxic. So we see that in victim survivors of sexual abuse or family violence. Um, and yeah, if if people think that shame's like, think about it this way, if shame wasn't a good emotion or a, a healthy emotion to feel, then if someone goes and some, murders someone, for example, and they don't feel shame, often as a society we get outraged and we shout, well, they should be ashamed of themselves, you know. Um, so shame is actually a very healthy emotion, it's, and it needs to be worked through. Um, often people will distinguish between guilt and shame. Um, so guilt being kind of, I did a bad thing, so more of an action-based, and shame is I'm a bad person. Mm-hmm. Controversial to this, some, some kind of scholars have thought that actually if you just engage with shame, if you just engage with that emotion, you'll move 
through to the action phase. Because guilt, if you just look at guilt, then what can happen when someone's harmed someone is that someone can get off, as in someone who's um, been harmed or has done harmful behaviours could say, yeah, I did the behaviours, and then feel guilt about that. So they're in the guilt phase of action phase. But they haven't changed an affect. So they haven't changed their affect around shame and what that might mean and how that, how that might impact someone. And what that leaves for the victim survivor is for them to feel really annoyed, actually, and a bit peeved, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit... Um, the, the the change of affect is really important that we that we see with shame, especially when harm has been caused. And then, yeah, I mean, so much in, in what you say, I mean, just to kind of pick up on, on one part, the first part. So there's a kind of evolutionary reason for shame and shame kind of keeps us within the group. Yeah. And that's yeah. Very and if we think, yeah. if we think about attachment, um, you know, it, it pulls on attachment because of attachment on the basis of it is um, a survival mechanism. No baby is born into this world. They're born to attach uh, unless circumstances show them that it's not safe to attach to caregiver. So we are born to attach to people and we're born to create an attachment. Um, and so shame is part of that, is about driving to the survival needs of us to connect with with people to survive. Yeah. And if we don't, then there's a threat response that comes up. And that's often where you see sometimes shame. So shame, you know, there's a kind of cold wash of shame, like the inward feeling of shame that often people will be able to identify but Alan Jenkins is um he's done a lot of work in shame and he's here in Australia. What he identifies with shame is, you know, these kind of behaviors of denial, blame, minimizing behaviors, justifying behaviors for the for the harm that they've caused, yeah. distracting of thinking about what's happened, withdrawal, aggression and violence, and self-harm. And so sometimes they can be the behaviors that people struggle maybe with to, to understand that it might be shame because um, shame is quite complex in the way sometimes it presents. And if you think about those behaviours and you think about the polyvagal theory, yeah. shame sits in the where uh, like the frozen response. And so those behaviours are actually fight-flight behaviours that you see kind of coming up to stop people moving directly into shame. And so what we do need to do with shame is get really curious about it to keep people in their um, ventral vagus nerve to keep curiosity going and in terms of your your work with you know survivors of you know of kind of sexual abuse could you maybe say a little bit more michael around you know how, how shame kind of shows up yep so with um survivors of sexual abuse it shows up um throughout the whole family um yeah. so often there's a bit of a gendered lens especially if it's um a male female parent um as in you know mother father or two caregivers male female um so often mothers will feel the shame of i should have known and um, because that's the society view of females should know what's going on for their children and uh, fathers often will say i should have protected um because yeah. fathers are often seen as a protector and actually what's really interesting about fathers being protectors is um it came came up um I was listening to the radio um, here in Australia, and it was about um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle when they left the the family, the royal family, and there was a conversation about why Harry had done that. And one kind of very Australian, kind of very working, working kind of guy uh, phoned through with a very Australian accent, saying he was just trying to protect his family. 
all males feel this. They have to protect their family. And again, just hit me that that's so strong um, in society around males protecting and females having to know or be attuned to what's going on for their their um, children. So shame can show up in that way if, uh, for victim survivor families. Mm. And then for the, the person who's been harmed, the child or young person, can show up as mistaken shame as like, I should have, it's my fault. Um, I put myself in those positions or grooming can come through. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just the whole kind of shame around, I've caused harm to my parents they're in so much upset so it really just like um goes through the whole family um and then often siblings can either i should have known or i should yeah. protect it or this is really yucky stuff and i don't want to be part of it so yeah it can be really really difficult for families yeah i mean it's so interesting i mean so, so shame really kind of it, it it ripples through the whole family system in different ways there's different gendered responses to it and and the victim you know of the 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 survivor of the sexual abuse they can often end up blaming themselves feeling shame yeah 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 so that's quite a common um yeah feeling and um yeah often there was a Lou Theroux did a documentary called Mothers on the Edge um probably in 2020 2021 um and there's a really kind of key um, kind of clip where there was a female so mothers on the edge was about um mums being in um, an inpatient ward in the uk for mental health um and one of the mums had been sexually assaulted two years prior to the child being born and the child was born to the um like her husband and so anyway she had it kind of been a triggering event because um there'd been like medical complications and there'd been people touching um kind of her vagina and that had been really intense for her and really triggering for her yeah so um and it had triggered these mental health uh, episodes so anyway they'd been on a they're kind of like a care team and they'd gone home and then she'd had flashbacks and so there's a real key scene in that piece where the females talking about you know she had flashbacks but hadn't disclosed to her partner about what the flashbacks were like and in the care team she ends up telling him and they both just show very strong signs of shame for example she feels so bad about what's her flashbacks and having them and then she feels bad for the impact it's had on him and then he feels bad about the sexual assault and wanting to have protected her again so it kind of um eats out in that in that way um so yeah that self-blame can be not only for the person who's been harmed, but for the yeah. people around around them. And, and such a strong, pervasive feeling. I mean, shame. I mean, uh, this may be difficult for you to, you know, answer, Michael, because I guess it depends on the individual and the family. But how generally do you do you work with shame? I mean, are there any kind of generic, you know, kind of um, therapeutic interventions you might use? Yeah, I think um, definitely like externalizing the shame. Yeah. Um, so whether that's, you know, using narrative therapy techniques or internal family systems techniques um, can really help. And then kind of um, the resource that I um, developed around working with shame can really be key around looking at themes um, of exploring shame. Um, so, you know, anger, denial, blame, mm. all these type of things can really be helpful to start to explore and just keeping that level of curiosity um 
but you know using those part works parts works around you know so there's part of you that might feel shame for example and you know what does that part want you to know about mm. the feeling that you're feeling and then I think you can help process it depending on your line of modality, but processing the shame through, I would suggest, um, kind of psychosensory modalities of kind of what we're looking at, like EMDR or emotion freedom technique, yeah. tapping or havening is a great one as well. So those ones can really help start to um, process it. Of course, you've got to take your lead from the person and curiosity is the most important part because you've got to be curious and get the person to kind of speak from speak for the kind of speak for the part and not from the part if that makes sense yeah. speaking kind of about it on a kind of meta level because you don't you kind of want to start to explore it um you don't want to get too triggered by it and if they're getting triggered then it's about right. remaining safe and getting the safety back in, in the room um and you'll see yeah. that you'll see you'll you'll see a, a, a sense of um activation so it's just about making sure everyone's safe. And that's not to say that there might not be any kind of activation, you know, there might be crying yeah. and that's okay. And just speaking through that, but um, any disassociation, you want to make sure that that's not happening mm -hmm. in the room. But um, processing shame is really important because if it's not processed or not worked through, then it's going to sit there um, and kind of fester. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it has to be kind of developed with the person who you're, who you're working with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a kind of really delicate way. Yeah, because I guess you're you're wanting to kind of externalize the shame, you know, and and I don't know, create a kind of collaborative, you know, curiosity about the shame, which I guess puts a little bit of distance in. I mean, the IFS and the parts work as well, I guess, also does that, puts a little bit of distance in, you know, but you're also, you know, warning the person while they're not triggered in order to connect with the shame and process it. I mean, goodness me, it's a it's a it's a very very delicate balance i mean it always is i think working with trauma isn't it yeah yeah it's yeah. a delicate balance and um setting up the safety beforehand is going to be absolutely key so yeah any kind of you know um i've explained to someone that if i'm seeing that things are just a bit overwhelming this is what i'm going to do and if you're feeling like things are overwhelming can you just give me a signal like a hand up and we'll stop and this is what we'll do like we'll go on make a cup of tea or we'll go and ground ourselves yeah. or this kind of having those strategies ready so that it's not just like oh my goodness they're so overwhelmed mm. what we're we going to do about it um because again it's about shame can just cut us off from everyone and take control of our lives so we want as we yeah. were talking about that collaborative approach where people feel like they are empowered mm. around the shame um and i would say that you know you can't process shame in one sitting like it's got to be yeah. worked through like named you know, there's the saying, name it to tame it and feel it to yeah, heal it. So there's yeah. those type of things that we've got to work yeah. through. So it's a very kind of um kind of person led around what they what they are feeling about what they want to do with it. Um yeah. Yeah, and the the, the name it to tame it. I mean, goodness me, this I mean, we could go we could branch out. I mean I'm, I'm interested in so many of the approaches you use. We could actually branch off and talk about any of them. I mean, the name it to tame it is something that I use. I mean, you know, it it it, it on the surface, it's a really gentle hack, you know. But but just by the act of naming, you're putting distance in, aren't you? Around you know whatever the trigger is. So I mean, I think that is a is a great approach. I'm wanting to ask a bit more about your exploring shame resource pack. Um, I mean, this can obviously, you know, this is aimed at helping people to you know heal from shame. Could you tell us a bit more about it? how people get hold of it, how they use it. 
Yep. So um, yeah, it's a it's a pack that I developed with um innovative resources. So they are quite famous for making the bear cards and the strength cards um that probably people use. Um, and what I the reason why I kind of went to innovative resources to develop it was I noticed that the kind of the profession that should be really great at working with it, um, just we struggled. And that's the royal we. We all struggle with shame because when we're working with shame, it's going to hit our shame stories, which then disconnect us. And then it's it's a very hard emotion to sit in the room with. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I noticed that people were really struggling. And so I thought that we could create a resource that, as we were talking about, puts distance between us and that deep emotion, but we're able to explore it, as well as kind of what... um kind of pedagogues talk about about creating the common third so creating a third thing there's me you and then something else and creating this common third to start to explore um the shame so people can get it online from innovative resources if they just google innovative resources exploring shame uh, they will it will pop up um and i think it's about 40 pounds um from um when i've checked yeah. um yeah, and they can just order that online. It's um a really great resource to really start to work with shame. And there's a booklet that goes around along with the shame uh, deck that uh, explains how to use them, kind of ideas around how to use them, how to use them in family therapy, how to use them singularly just with people, how to use them with school groups, um, all different ways of, of using the cards. Um, because what we also know is like if we're doing kind of like a group for um, young people around healthy sexual behaviors then what we need to focus on is also about shame and how that might come up especially around sex so you know for example I've worked in harmful sexual behaviors as well and what comes up for young people is this pressure to have sex but then they might do it in a harmful way which then makes them feel more shame as well so it's like shame and shamed so it's about how do we work through the shame if you don't want to do what the group mm. is mm. abiding by. So that's those shared values and rules, which sometimes can be quite toxic. So yeah, working through that. So the shame cards can really, really help with with that. And um, yeah, they've been, they're really um, gentle. There's lots of themes in there. There's gender, um, there's um, apology. So apology work. So really thinking about who's the apology for and why, because um, we often think about that in for victim survivors as well as when a young person's done harmful sexual behavior sometimes a young person who's done harmful sexual behavior might want to apologize to get rid of the shame and yeah. then that's a kind of another conversation to be having around well what if the, what if the person doesn't want an apology and how is that going to land so mm. yeah it's really so it's all those kind of different themes around shame um so we we created about 50 themes and kind of pulled them back down to 30. So there's 30 cards in the, in the pack that you can use. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds fantastic and a resource, not only for individuals to, you know, to use themselves, but also for therapists to use for people working with young people, but I guess anyone working with groups really, I mean, shame is present, you know, in, you know, most of our lives, isn't it in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, and obviously we'll put all of the links, you know, for our listeners on our, all of our social media sites. If they want to get hold of the shame cards, um, just just check out our social media. We'll also have it on the, you know, on the link to this podcast. I mean, it's such a such an interesting, you know, subject. I mean, I'm, I'm rewinding a little bit. Um, you mentioned e EMDR. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not trained to use EMDR. But that being said, you know, I mean, I've actually had EMDR, and wow, it's such an effective 
therapeutic method i wonder whether you could just say a little bit more about emdr and you know your experiences with it because i know you use emdr don't you yeah, I use EMDR and Havening as well. I find Havening quite effective and they yeah. both work on the same kind of level. So when we bring up um, a memory, um, a traumatic memory, often through different, between two neurons in the neural, in the neural network, this happens really quickly. So I'll, I'll describe it slowly, but it happens yeah. in the brain quickly, is through new, one neuron, a big gamma wave comes down. At the end of the neuron, there's like salts and proteins released, which then connects onto another neuron. So it binds it together and then that continues down and another gamma wave comes up. When you start to bring up the memory and either use uh, EMDR, emotional freedom technique or havening, it's any kind of sensory input. The gamma wave changes to a beta wave, which is a smaller wave that comes down and reduced salts, like not as much salts and proteins are released. And so then it's hard for the neural neural connection so it brings down the neural network down so then the memory is not as traumatic it's um people won't be able to remember the the memory as in as much detail um and so often emdr will describe it as bringing up the um short-term memory like working the short-term memory to process the short-term memory of the traumatic memory to put it back into your long-term memory so that's how it kind of works. Either of like all three of those modalities work very similarly, similarly together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it can be different ways. I find havening just maybe a bit easier for people to do. So havening is more of a touch base. I'm I don't uh, personally like to touch people unless they want to, and we sign an agreement, cool. of course. Yeah. But um, they do the touch themselves and I find that they're just more connected because EMDR can be is great it just can sometimes feel like a fewer if there are sometimes in EMDR what they use is you know the fingers that you follow can just feel a bit detached it can feel quite lonely yeah um so whereas the touch can feel a bit more connected um to, to themselves so just depends what people want. And of course, with EMDR, you can use butterfly the butterfly kind of um yeah. touch instead. That, that, that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. So that can that can feel like better than the uh, the eye movement. Um, so yeah, there's and there's lots of different modalities that you can use with kids, like you know a slinky, kind of moving that so that the bilateral stimulation is coming in. Yeah. So anything that's putting that bilateral stimulation in is um, going to help process process the memory. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of going to repeat what I said at the start, Mike. I mean, goodness me, your toolkit is vast, isn't it? <laughs> It really is, isn't it? I mean, I you know, I don't say that to flatter you. I mean, it is the truth. I mean, goodness me, you bring so much to the table in terms of, you know, being being a therapist. I mean, what what did I normally ask this question at the start, actually, but what what led you into into the field? Um, uh, there's there's multiple things that, that led me in. Um, so me and my sister, my sister's in the UK, and and we, like I grew up in the UK, grew up in Scotland. And she worked in residential care when I was younger. And I used to just hear lots of stories and that was really interesting to me. Um, and then at the age of 18, I went away and traveled and worked in like volunteered in an orphanage in India. And that was lots of fun. Um, just getting to know the kids and just a different culture. And then I came back and then just kind of landed into residential care and then just kind of went from there. Um, but my interest in shame kind of came up because of probably a quite a personal story. Um, uh, my sexuality, I'm bisexual. Um, and so I've had a lot of 
shame to grapple with in my life. Um, and then the shame became quite intense here in Australia. In 2017, 2018, there was a vote um, to decide whether same-sex marriage would be legal or not. And it was a very intense time to, to kind of live through. And I noticed that my own shame was was high during that time. And of course, I went to someone and kind of talked that through and worked that yeah. through. But I also, at the time, was also working in the sexual assault field and would notice that um, people... Um, like the either the harmful sexual behavior or victim survivors had strong feelings of shame. And it really struck me one day when I was working with a young person, it was the third session in and his mom had told me about, so he had had quite a, a long um, victim survivor kind of history. He'd yeah. really had a really intense time. And then his mom kind of had phoned me before the session and said, oh, he's been, um, like sexually assaulting the dog um and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to talk about with them so um in the third session we had to have this conversation and credit to him he was able to kind of talk it through but he just went straight into shutdown mode and we're able yeah. to kind of open it up a little bit to start to talk about safety mm-hmm. i was just more concerned about his safety and, and, the, and the dog's safety around yeah. what we we're going to do so during that time we created a safety plan but what really struck me was his strong sense of shame that came yeah. through and just how horrible he felt about what happened um, in the behaviour. So, yeah. And it really, you know, says a lot about, I think, your, you know, your your ability to contain, because I, I guess you, I mean, even this in, in this example, you know, you, you're inviting people to, you know, open up about things that they find very shameful. And that is very difficult for people to do, isn't it? And I think it probably says a lot about you as a person that, that like you are able to feel feel like a safe enough kind of attachment figure that they can do that. Um, I, I just wanted to ask a little bit around, um, uh, oh, what was I going to ask about? Um, yeah, I was going to ask a little bit around your coping strategies. I mean, how do you look after yourself? Because you're you're working in an area you know that with very strong emotion with you know lots and lots of trauma i just wonder how you look after yourself yep so there's uh there's kind of three or four things that are like elements to it i think there's kind of the physical side to it um so like going to the gym and working out running yeah. swimming and um, i love to swim and here in australia i love swimming outside because in scotland that just wasn't possible because uh, <laughs> of the it, weather no true i mean beautiful beaches in scotland but unfortunately the weather yeah <laughs> yeah you can't you can't go outside um so really moving my body i actually felt it last week um i'd been on training all weekend and towards the end of that week I just couldn't get to the gym and on Monday my body just really wanted to move and I just went to the gym for 30 minutes and it just felt great so really moving your body because it gets caught in your nervous system and you need to like get that out it's really important um because we we hear such uh, horrendous things um so there's kind of the physical element then I think eating well, you know, they talk about, you know, your yeah. gut being the second brain. So eating well, I came across that quite early in my career. I used to have sandwiches and they used to make me feel really sluggish. So really eating a really good diet was really important to me. Um, I eat a lot of quinoa. Um, and my partner, he um, is a pescatarian. So I, yeah, I don't eat a lot of meat, but when I do, I do, I do like meat. Um, so yeah, I had to get creative with vegetables. Um for for us. Um so I like to eat a good diet. 
I think sharing your emotions and being vulnerable, I think leading with vulnerability is actually a beautiful, a beautiful yeah. way. Um, so connect yeah. with people. Um, often at the end of the day, I do like a good hug from my partner just to kind of ground me. Yeah. Um, which makes me feel really nice and, and wholesome. Um, so yeah, talking about your feelings, talking about what's going on, if you're struggling, talking it through, which can be hard, you know, like, you know, you're supposed yeah. to be this kind of um person who's got it together but you know everyone in the field has come in this field for a reason um and they'll have their own story of why that is and i think it's not about being shameful about that story and it's not about um you know telling everyone that we work with with that story of course they're coming to us to get that support but i think it's about being aware of it and that it's okay like it actually makes us stronger in the work because we know how that sense is i think looking at the strengths is really important um yeah, and just just and having a good kind of group around you who can support you with um difficulties or who understand what what might be going on in the field. So yeah, that's probably the three or four things that I that I do to look after myself. Yeah, and and I guess I mean just to pick up pick up on one of them, leading with vulnerability. I mean, it makes me think of kind of Brené Brown and kind of her work and yeah, I mean leading with vulnerability is difficult often because of the shame, isn't it? <laughs> you know but uh yeah i mean to try and be open and also the physical touch from from your partner you know i mean physical touch can be so grounding can't it really yeah i mean it is you know and i guess clinical supervision as well i mean i, I guess you have yeah. clinical supervision yeah. which I, I kind of helps us all um i mean conscious of the time you know there's so many things other things we could have talked about I and mean, we're going to maybe come to come to a conclusion is there anything that you would have liked to talk about that we haven't talked about today michael um, I think shame is just such a vast topic that we could go in so yeah. many different ways. And I would also be interested in what um, the listeners have to say and if they are interested in any other topics and happy to come come back and maybe do another one if that's what they're interested in. Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to have you back and, and talk about, you know, talk, we'll talk about shame, but also talk about a little bit more about some of the therapeutic approaches. I mean, IFS, narrative therapy. I mean, there's so much that you bring. Uh, also the Milan approach, which, uh, yeah, which is also worthy of kind of talking about on a podcast. But I think for now, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, Michael. This is going to be a fascinating podcast for our listeners. And uh, yeah, and maybe we'll see you again on the podcast at some stage. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, just once again, uh, thanks so much to Michael for coming on the show. Um, I mean, Michael brought, again, you know, so many different kind of areas we could have touched on. You know, it's interesting. I was so so keen to get on with the interview. I didn't actually ask him um, the, the initial question, what led him into the field, although I did get back to that. A little bit later um i talked a little bit around the you know and his therapeutic kind of toolbox and all of the different modalities he draws on in his work which i thought was vast really um i mean including you know the ifs you know internal family systems narrative therapy you know of which i'm quite a big fan and also the milan approach to systemic um therapy family systems therapy um and also the level of complexity, I think, you know, when working with families, um, the level of complexity must be absolutely vast. Um, really interesting as well to hear a lot more about shame. Um, and shame, Michael said, comes from, you know, an, an evolutionary perspective, i.e., you know, shame is there to stop us from 
um, I guess, being shunned by the group, you know. So, I mean, there is, in, in terms of um, a, a background, you know, a, a kind of, you know, hunter-gatherer background, you know, I mean, it, being excluded from the group because of something that we've done um, would actually lead to death. So, I mean, I guess it, in in some ways that explains the just in very, you know, extreme power of shame. Uh, and also, you know, just to repeat what I said to Michael at the end of the interview, you know, I mean, it really thinks there's a lot about him as a practitioner and his ability to, you know, remain in those kind of Algerian core conditions, you know, non-judgmental, unconditional, positive regard, and uh, to be able to contain and really work with people's kind of trauma, you know, and the shame also. Um, and also the shame within the family, I thought was very, very interesting as well, you know, working with a whole family and trying to work through shame. Um, Michael talked about his his excellent resource, um, the kind of shame cards, um, and you can find a link to all of those, you know, on um, and and other links to Michael on our social media platforms. Um, I mean, the innovative shame cards. I think I'm going to buy myself a set. I mean, they do sound massively helpful, um, and yeah, I'd be keen to use them actually, kind of in my own practice. Um, I, I did say at the end of, of the interview, I asked Michael if maybe he could appear again because we we could have got, gone down so many paths. And I, I think Michael shares some of the approaches that I love so much. I mean, I, I use a lot of narrative therapy. I really, really love the systemic approach and the Milan approach. Um, so I think we do we, we do share you know some of those modalities and uh, and also the mention of Dan Siegel, um, name it to tame it. Um, big fan of Dan Siegel. I'm, I'm reading one of his book, which I, the name is escaping me at the moment. He's his most recent book, and uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And the whole idea between name it to tame it is, you know, if a feeling, you know, a thought comes up and we identify with it, then it kind of it becomes our reality, you know. But just by the simple hack of naming thoughts and feelings as they come up, it just puts a bit of distance around it. So, say for instance, I was feeling anxiety. And maybe I said, oh, there is anxiety. Then immediately there's some distance. And I guess what, you know, what we're doing partly is kind of creating a metacognitive space where we can look at, you know, watch and be curious about our own process. You know, a strong mindfulness component there, you know, as well. Um, but really interesting. I mean, I, I hope you'll all agree. Uh, I, I just think we've, we've got some fantastic guests um, we've had some brilliant interviews, you know, of which this current interview was one, you know, as part of season four. Lots more coming up. Um, interviews from uh, practitioners and um, people with learned, uh, lived experience in the UK and also Australia. Um, so, yeah, just, just once again, thank you to, to Michael and uh, stay tuned. We've, we've got some, you know, some more excellent guests coming on uh and as usual you know thank you to our listeners thank you for listening we wouldn't have a show without you and um be good to each other be good to yourself be good to the planet i'll catch you on the next next episode thanks again for listening to the show if you have, have been affected by any of the topics on this show or any other of our shows um if you're in the uk then please reach out um, Samaritans can be contacted on 116-123. Now, the GP is also a good source of um, contact and can be the gateway for, you know, counselling services and other mental health support. Um, reach out to your mental health support team, um, mental health first aider um, or trusted friend. 
colleague or family member. We have a lot of international listeners. Um, so if you're listening from a non-UK country, um, then please reach out to you know your country's healthcare and mental health care providers. Um, and remember, it's okay not to be okay. Hashtag psychotherapy unfogged with Mark Field.